I'm Essen Zafar, and welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity and social, political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every other week, we interview one person for 25 minutes to get their perspective on structural inequality. And today, I'm joined by Dr. Tom Nolan, professor at Emanuel College in Massachusetts. Hey, Tom, thanks for uh, being on the podcast. My pleasure. This is the first time we're recording remotely with me in D.C. and you in Boston. And Tom and I have known each other now for, what, about 10 years or so. Tom's been somebody who's guided my career. And I think the listeners, Tom, would like to maybe hear a little bit about your uh, history, your kind of career history. So I started my career in law enforcement as a Boston police officer in 1978. And when I left uh, law enforcement in 2004, I took a faculty position at Boston University where I had been a graduate student for 12 years and I earned my master's degree and doctorate there. So I was um, uh, an associate professor of criminal justice at Boston University for seven years. And then I left BU to go and work uh, for the government in Washington, D.C. I worked at the Department of Homeland Security and its Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. And I subsequently left the government. And then I went back into teaching. And then I took a bit of time. I took a, by maybe a year to uh, write a book. And that book was published last February, February 2019. It's called Perilous Policing, Criminal Justice in Marginalized Communities. And when that book was completed, I returned to the academe, and I'm a visiting associate professor of sociology at Emanuel College here in Boston. So, Tom, you've advocated for reform in terms of how law enforcement um, dealt with different communities, like low-income communities, communities of color. Ha- have the law- has the law enforcement community embraced your efforts? Uh, in terms of uh, this kind of advocacy? I I won't say that the law enforcement community has embraced me because I have, uh, you know, between publishing this book and making um, media, you know, commentary, I've done that over the years, certainly since the last probably 15 years I've been doing media commentary. And oftentimes I've called into question police practices and, and police procedures and particularly following incidents where, Uh, The police have used deadly force um, against young African-American men and women and even uh, in in boys and girls as well. So uh, I think there is a a sense in the in the law enforcement community that um, that I would speak my mind. And I think that there are a core of people who still work in law enforcement who might um, endorse that and support that. Um, I think, but uh, they would do so privately. I don't think uh, publicly that I would get this support from the law enforcement community, um, given the nature of how the subculture operates. And I certainly was part of it. And it's something that uh, from the perspective of a, a white male who has come up through the ranks in law enforcement, um, I think there's probably a sense on the part of some people who are still there that I may have um, literally and metaphorically broken ranks with uh, with the cops when 
um, when I criticize them. And, and I'm also, I should say that I've uh, certainly supported law enforcement when uh, that support has been indicated and when it's um, and when it has been needed and when it has been earned. And that probably is more often than not. But I think what stands out in the minds of, of some is that I have done commentary that has at times been um, stridently critical of what has occurred uh, in places like Ferguson, Missouri and Baltimore and Cleveland and New York City. Um, and so yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's kind of a it's a mixed bag um, how I've been um, received in the, in the law enforcement community. So you haven't been received with open arms in the law enforcement community, right? Kind of help me understand what the pushback is. Are law enforcement folks just defensive or is the law enforcement community agitated about something else? The police don't see that they are um, going into communities of color, going into marginalized communities with any anything resembling a heavy hand. I think that in the minds of uh, law enforcement officers is that they are going where the crime is. And I think that they fail to see that uh, that the crime exists in many parts, uh, in many forms, by virtue of their presence in these communities. So that when they go in and they, um, you know, surveil the streets, and this is something I talk to my students about, and, and by surveillance, I don't mean using, you know, sophisticated technology. I mean, just patrolling the streets of uh, communities of color and seeing what the police see. And I don't think that in the minds of the officers that they see that they are um, there looking for trouble. I think that they, they can convince themselves and they have that they're there to protect the people in the community. And I think that the disconnect that exists is that they're unable to see the perspective of the people, particularly young black and brown men, who they stop on the street um, you know, and oftentimes suspicionless stops, which are, you know, violative of the law. But I think the police see that in, in their minds, at least, that the, uh, the ends justify the means. So that if they stop uh, young black and brown men and even, uh, you know, boys and girls. I mean, I've had students uh, of color who are young women who report being stopped by the police. Um, I think in the, in the minds of the cops, they don't understand what the big deal is. Um, they think that um, that what they're doing is effective law enforcement practice. And I don't think that they realize that when, you know, in the in the communities that they're they're enacting these kinds of, of uh, police policies that, that target young men and women of color, I don't think the cops see it that way. I think that they see that that's what they're surrounded with. And I also think that they don't see that in the minds of these young people who they're stopping, they're creating a very specific impression of who and what law enforcement is. And it's not a favorable impression. And I think it leads to situations where in many communities of color, the legitimacy itself of the police uh, is questioned because they see uh, people, residents of these communities, and particularly young people who are out in the street, see that law enforcement is, uh, is uneven is unpredictable, is something that uh, that they don't understand. There's no clear message being given about how to comport oneself uh, in the street and, uh, and avoid being the target of 
a police intervention, a police stop. So I think that just creates this this kind of disconnect that's actually a schism that uh, it drives a wedge right between um, the communities and, and, you know, say they use the term communities of color and marginalized communities and the police who are in there policing these communities. I think there's just a, a severe lack of, of uh, empathy uh, on the part of the, of the police and an understanding of what it means to be stopped on the street and, and search and have your backpack gone through and being patted down in the street as if you're a criminal. And I think oftentimes the police, and I confess to having been guilty of this myself, I was a, you know, one of the first supervisors in what was then called the anti-gang violence unit in, uh, in 1990. And it's now called the Youth Violence Strike Force. But I know when we went out into the street, many of us, and I was a supervisor, so I was in charge of uh, probably had 12 police officers working for me. And we had uh, no kind of ability to differentiate uh, between good kids and kids who uh, might have been gang members. So in, in that effort in trying to determine um, who the good kids were and, you know, we just we would stop and target anyone who dressed a certain way. And we didn't have an understanding that uh, that kids um, in their attire and uh, in the ways that they they comport themselves in the street. It's um, there's no difference between the good kids and the kids who are um, who are on the uh, on the margins of uh, joining gangs. So there certainly is that uh, that level of uh, and it has arisen in, to where we are in 2020 in, in many communities and cities uh, across the country um, where there is a, a significant level of um, mistrust and suspicion uh, on the part of, of both. Uh, people who reside in marginalized communities and the police who police these communities. So, uh, and, and that's something that, you know, certainly the last several years, I mean, probably going back um, after the uh, 9-11 terrorist attacks where the police began to assume a more militarized posture in, in our cities. Um, and that I think even further alienated uh, the police from people who are um, residents of marginalized communities. So could you actually talk about what this whole process looks like that you've alluded to? What what happens when a person of color is interdicted by law enforcement, let's say from the point of contact, from the point of first contact, until the incarceration and thereafter? Yeah. Well, from the, I, I use these, uh, and, and the issue has become, uh, timely in 2020 um, because of what's going on in the in the presidential uh, primary election now, where we've seen the issue of stop and frisk once again come up, um, and particularly as it pertains to the New York City Police Department. But uh, New York City Police is the largest police department in the country, so it's a standout for that obvious reason. But uh, what has occurred in cities across the country? is that when young black and brown men um, and boys are stopped by the police, and we've seen videos, I've used these in my, in my classes, where, uh, in fact, there's one, uh, it's an audio clip of a, a stop that has been played many, many times of uh, a young um, Hispanic man, a boy, he's, I think he was 17, who was stopped not once but twice by the same police officers in the span of two blocks. And we listened to a recording the police didn't know they were being recorded. 
and we hear the interaction and we hear the tone that is immediately adopted is one. And interestingly, this young man's father was a New York City police officer um, and the police officers knew this. But nonetheless, they stopped him twice. And in an expletive laden um, exchange and the police shouting at him that they were going to break this boy's arm and they were going to punch him in his face. And they were suspicious of him because once they stopped him the first time and watched him walk away, they saw him looking over his shoulder. And to that, to the police, that aroused their suspicion yet again for some reason. And so they targeted this young man and treated him in a way that I think anyone would find offensive. And the, the level of hostility and anger and belligerence and the lack of professionalism that the police um, displayed here, and they, I'm, I'm certain, had no idea that uh, that uh, this was, I think, 2011 or 2012, that eight years later I would be using this in an undergraduate college class um, to demonstrate what the police are doing. And I think this was in Brooklyn. Uh, but from the time that, uh, you know, if you consider the stop as the beginning of the uh, the intake process, if you want to consider it that, where uh, in, in another video that uh, that I've used, it shows a young man who would dare to question why the police, and this is an African-American um, teenager who was stopped. He reported over a period of months, 60 or 70 times by the police in New York City. And he knew if he questioned the, the officers as to why they stopped him, that he'd end up getting taken to the station. But he questioned them nonetheless. And he reported that he would be kept in the station and not allowed to use the telephone, not given any water to drink or food to eat. Um, and he would be kept there for seven or eight hours and then let out the back door and told to go home. Um, no charges having been filed. But that's uh, his exposure. And, and for young men like that, that's the exposure that they have to law enforcement and, and the beginnings of the criminal justice system. So it's uh, not at all uncommon for um, for young black and brown boys and men who are stopped in the street to be given a summons to appear in court or if not outright arrested and, and held for a court appearance. And then they begin to see that the system as it's set up is, uh, is set up to facilitate their um, being taken before the court, being taken into a police station, being booked and photographed and then arraigned in court on some charge that uh, that um, it's not uncommon for the charge itself to be something that is a, you know, a variant of a disorderly person or some kind of quality of life offense that oftentimes is, is unclear what the actual crime uh, has been committed to the, the person who's being charged with the commission of a crime. It's, it's unclear as to what the specifics of the law are that have been violated, but nonetheless, there is a court appearance and there is a criminal record. And, and, and if, the, if it's a summons, um, that process initiates with the summons. So once the uh, young men and women of color are brought into the, into the criminal justice system and into the court, um, they now have a criminal record or there's some kind of a memorialization of the fact that they've been involved with the criminal justice system. And we see that uh, certainly the, um, the, the lawsuit that resulted from uh, that uh, nine or 10 year ago um, 
stop and frisk. I would characterize it as a scandal in New York City where they stopped 850,000 people in a year and over 90% of them were not charged with any crime. Um, 80 something, 88, 86, 88% of the people they stopped were people of color. Um, And so, uh, and they're taken into the system. And this is not unique to New York by any means, but um, I think once um, taken into the system, I don't think that the police are aware that uh, they're aware of, of very little that goes beyond the court appearance and the, the legacy of, uh, of those original stops in the street where there's an exchange and it leads to conflict and it leads to confrontation that may lead to an arrest or a summons. Um, and that that ends up ultimately having a profound effect on uh, that individual's ability to survive and to, and to thrive in a healthy community. So once you're involved with the criminal justice system, your ability to kind of extricate yourself from that, particularly if you are um, a young man or woman of color, um, you're going to suffer the consequences of that um, being brought into the system for many years to come. And it's something that we just have, have I think, categorically um, succeeded in alienating a significant percentage of the people who um, we are, in, at least in theory, supposed to be protecting and supposed to, and particularly when it, when it pertains to juveniles. I mean, the, the role of the police in, um, in, juvenile, uh, in the juvenile justice system is to protect children. And I think oftentimes, to go back to the stop of the, of the young man who was stopped twice, in, in New York City, um, they're doing anything but protecting this young man. And so once the young people begin to see that the police are not there to protect them, they don't see them as a resource. They don't see them as someone who is there to help them if they are in a, in a situation where, you know, a dangerous situation or an unsafe situation. So I think that kind of legacy, um, and if you, you multiply it by enough instances of negative interactions between law enforcement and people who reside in marginalized communities, it just compounds the effect that it has on the health of communities. And certainly in a, in a negative way, um, I think it affects people's sense of, uh, of um, well-being, a community well-being, a sense of purpose, a sense of cohesion, a sense of community health. I think that's something that the police have no idea that they are affecting this in any kind of a a negative or any kind of a profound way. I think that they see the world in terms of of black and white, literally and metaphorically, and that they are um, present in communities to ensure that the laws are upheld and that uh, primarily that order is uh, maintained and whatever they think they need to do to maintain order and to quote unquote uphold the law, they see justified in, in, in doing. And if that includes stopping a lot of teenagers who have baggy pants on and, um, and baseball hats that seem to indicate uh, membership in some kind of group or gang or another, then they're going to do that. Stop and frisk, right, which is the policy you've just talked about, was famously a policy of recent presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg. He defended the policy in 2015 by saying that African-American neighborhoods 
is, quote, where the crime is. And this is a common argument in some circles, perhaps even in law enforcement circles as well. Can you share maybe some personal anecdotal experiences or research that you would point to maybe encountering that argument? Well, certainly the, the, the argument could be made that um, crime is where the police are. So I would just kind of flip that around. And just by virtue of the police immersing themselves in marginalized communities, they are going to find some crime. And oftentimes the crime that they find is uh, low-level disorder-related offenses. So you have disorderly persons, you have, you know, lewd behavior, you have some kind of um, some kind of disturbance-related offense that will fit into some mode of illegality that the that the officers are able to kind of maneuver and, and massage. And I think, uh, in so doing, they're creating a situation where they're making arrests on the street for possession of marijuana, for example, or for some kind of uh, street level offense. And, and you know, it's, it's not unusual for them to get uh, weapons, but I think it's more the exception than the rule. So the argument that, that I would counter that, um, that the police are going where the crime is, I would just say, take that a step further and say that where the police go, they are going to find crime. And it's not the crime that most people would see an appropriate use or a proper use of police resources. So addressing order-related offenses, um, arresting people for misdemeanor-related offenses, for street offenses, for having you know, an open container of alcohol, for possessing a small amount of marijuana, for engaging in some kind of street offense, street disturbance, some loud behavior, some objectionable behavior in the street. And oftentimes um, these offenses, if we categorize them that, are brought to the attention of the police by people who don't understand that this is perhaps in many ways, this is normal teenage behavior. Um, and so the police are called into a situation or the police observe a situation and they take some kind of law enforcement action and that's where you have crime. And so the police will justify their immersion in communities of color and having a heavy hand in those communities. Um, and, and I've even heard um, some, I've never heard this from, from community residents, but I've heard political leaders say that they're going in to these communities because the people want the police in there. Um, I, I would dispute that um, and I, forcefully. I think that uh, that going in when the police are um, are patrolling areas of marginalized communities, they are of course going to see um, offenses and, and situations that may violate the law and that may constitute in their minds some kind of disorder. And when they take an enforcement action, um, that kind of you know, fulfills that notion that they're going where the crime is. And I guess what what I would, you know, counter again is to say that if the police weren't there, many of these arrests for uh, low-level misdemeanors and, um, and street disturbance-related offenses wouldn't be occurring. So um, I think by virtue of the police just being in, in, in communities that are marginalized and historically have not had um, resources that uh, public resources and private resources devoted to them that would ensure the health of these communities. You have communities that instead have a very heavy police presence. 
um, and little other in the form of uh, of a government presence other than the cops. So um, it becomes, in a sense, a self-fulfilling prophecy that this is where we go because this is where the crime is. And oh, by the way, we're going in there and making arrests. I would just um, point to the types of arrests that are being made in marginalized communities. And they're not going in there getting bank robbers. They're not arresting people for sexual assaults, kidnappings, um, for, you know, armed robbery offenses. Um, They're arresting people for low-level misdemeanors and calling that crime. Right. This is common in a number of communities. Would you say there's kind of selective law enforcement then in privileged communities and blanket law enforcement uh, of the law in underprivileged communities? Well, stop and frisk, for example, stops do not occur um, in communities that are characterized as privileged. Uh, Middle class communities um, are not affected by heavy handed stop and frisk um, tactics that the police routinely employ in communities of color. And so if you uh, marginalized communities are characterized by uh, substandard housing, um, oftentimes families without resources, um, and schools that are substandard, a lack of, um, of viable employment opportunities outside of the minimum wage opportunities that exist. Um, and so you're, you're absolutely right. People will, on occasion, turn to uh, gray market economies to sustain themselves. So if I have to take care of my family and there are no opportunities for any kind of meaningful employment in my community or anywhere near my community, and anywhere that I can access through public transportation, then I may resort to engaging in activities that are uh, that are unlawful, and in so doing, um, become the target of of law enforcement intervention that wouldn't be present in in communities, middle class communities. Certainly in the suburbs, you don't see stop and frisk in the suburbs unless you happen to be a person of color who doesn't look right in the circumstances to the police there. So. Uh, I think, you know, you're right in saying that there is this kind of duality and I think it contributes and and the police, to their credit, I mean, they believe that they are doing what's expected of them. They believe that they're doing what they've been trained to do. And I think they are, most of them are genuinely trying to do the right thing in communities and particularly communities that are, that are afflicted with, with poverty and just, you know, generations of poverty and families that have been affected by that and as a result have become uh, fragmented and fractured and communities that have become fragmented and fractured. And so I think the police see that they are at least the kind of a, you know, last line or even frontline resource to, to help people in the community. And I think oftentimes they think that uh, they're targeting um, young men, particularly uh, in boys that um, that this is something that's expected of them. And I don't think that they realize the extent to which they are creating an entire generation of young people who is seething with um, resentment and antipathy towards law enforcement. And, um, and in many ways, that's why law enforcement has such difficulty in, in recruiting um, you know, police officers from marginalized communities because um, these young people have grown up um, distrusting and being suspicious of the police and, and, um, and holding them in a, in a degree of disdain, uh, rightly or wrongly. And I think it just points to 
a system of, of law enforcement and even the, I would say the entire criminal justice system where being black or brown um, puts you at a specific and, and intergenerational disadvantage. You know, listening to everything you've kind of said, what are some solutions that law enforcement or even other community members could impose to kind of fix some of these issues you've highlighted, right, with with bias and policing? Well, I think part of it has to start with some meaningful and significant civilian oversight and civilian input into law enforcement policy. And the oversight part of it is um, that civilian members of the community, paid professional staff, um, need to be able to um, investigate and evaluate what the police are doing in communities and particularly marginalized communities. I know that uh, two nights ago, uh, the Civilian Oversight Board in the city of Oakland, California, which is probably the strongest oversight model that exists in the country today, uh, they fired their police chief and the Civilian Oversight Board actually has the authority to do that. They also have the authority to subpoena documents, to initiate um, investigations of officer misconduct and excessive force issues. And so I think it starts with that. Kind of, and this is something that law enforcement is necessarily going to be uh, stridently resistant to. But it has to start with this kind of notion that the police um, work for the communities that uh, employ them and not the other way around so that the police are subordinated in their role in the community to uh, to people who will evaluate them and people who will investigate them if need be and people who will oversee them. And, and this kind of independence, I think, will, um, will fundamentally alter the model of law enforcement that we have in 2020. But I think it's the next kind of necessary evolution of where we go with law enforcement. So um, we see civilian oversight boards um, that are being established in cities across the country. They have them in Washington, D.C. They have them in New York City. They have a, a model in Chicago called the uh, Civilian Office of Police Accountability. And these are civilian investigators who are unarmed, and they are charged with investigating all Chicago Police Department wrongdoing, including uh, investigating deadly force incidents. So the Chicago Police Department is no longer authorized to investigate itself. And I think that will be in the years uh, ahead will be the norm rather than the exception. And so with that, I think um, policies can be established that will regulate how the police engage in law enforcement activities in communities that have been historically marginalized. That's one part of it. Another part of it, I think, is, is, is the more daunting challenge, and that is to um, to fundamentally change the police subculture uh, in, in ways that, that will, as I said, prove challenging um, and, and kind of alter the, the worldview and the perspective of the police to see that, and, and many officers operate like this uh, and have been for some time, but, but see the people who live and work in communities and particularly communities that have been historically marginalized as allies in um, in maintaining um, community cohesion and community health rather than as adversaries. And so once the police 
um, see this and they're trained to do this. And this is something that's reinforced for them. And it's something that's rewarded in officers who are most successful at it. I think that will begin to turn the tide from uh, the place that we've been, places we've been over the last decades to where we want to go in the coming decades. I think that's right. And I think these suggestions probably require more time for us to discuss uh, more thoroughly. Um, In any case, I really appreciate you joining us for the podcast. I think all the listeners... Yeah, we'll do it again, for sure. uh, ...have enjoyed uh, or hopefully will enjoy your comments. And I thank um, all the listeners also for their patience uh, with the slightly diminished audio quality this time around as this is the first time we've tried out uh, a podcast with a remote guest, somebody not in Washington, D.C. Tune in next time for another episode of Unfair Nation. Thanks for joining us this time and uh, wish you a great uh, rest of your week. Unfair Nation's brought to you by Tech Change, and we have Nick Martin here with us today in the studio. He's the founder and CEO of Tech Change. Nick, tell us a little bit about Tech Change. Thank you, Essen. Tech Change builds beautiful and engaging online courses on topics related to tech and social change. Check out our course catalog at techchange.org, or if you've got an idea for a course and want our help to build and deliver it, get in touch today.